Chapter 21, A Bird Who Flies, Ruth's Perspective. In the summer of 1941, before I came back to New York to stay with Dennis in Harlem, we received a letter in Suffolk from Mama's family in New York. It said, we have three rooms worth of furniture. Do you want it? Booba lived in a three-room apartment. That's how they told us Booba was dead. They didn't even write to Mama, but rather to Tata in English, which Mama didn't read nor understand. Tata read the letter and tossed it to me. Read this to your mother, he said, and walked away. I waited till evening to read it to her, which meant she was walking around the store all day not knowing her mother was dead. And Tata knew it, and I knew it, and it was just a mess. I read it to her in her bedroom, the one she shared with me and Dee Dee. She had a little rocking chair that she sat in, and she was sitting there, looking out the window. When I came into the room and I said, Mama, I have something to read to you, and I read it to her. She never said a word. She just sat there and stared into the night, tears rolling down her face. Not a sound came from her lips. Not a word. Later on, I went to bed and I heard a little noise coming from her bed. She slept in a little bed by herself. I heard this little noise coming from her bed and I knew she was crying. And I said, it's all right, Mama. It's all right. But she just cried and cried, just weeping. I can still hear her weeping now sometimes. I know the exact sound of it. Like a note you hear or a song that keeps spinning around in your head and you can't forget it. Every once in a while, while I'm walking down the street, I think I hear it, just a quick stifle noise, like an oh, and I turn around, and no one's there. I stuck around Suffolk a while longer, and then I left for good sometime in 1941. I can't remember the exact time of all this because it was a bad time. It was bad. I left over Mama's objections too. She said, you can't have, you can have a good life here, but I said, I can't live here, Mama. And she didn't bring it up ever again or ask me to stay any longer. There was no life in Suffolk for me. I packed what few things I wanted and tried to talk to Dee Dee before I left, but she wouldn't talk to me. You promised you wouldn't go, she said, and she walked away from me as I left the store to walk downtown to the bus station. Mama handed me a bag lunch and kissed me, and I was out the door and gone. I never saw her or Dee Dee ever again. Tata didn't say a word to me as I walked out. The Greyhound bus station was across from the Suffolk Hotel in those days. I was standing there waiting for the bus to come when Tata pulled up the car. He kept a big V8 Ford. We got, he got out and took his hands out of his pocket and started pacing. He said, you should stay. I said, I can't. I was nervous. He always made me nervous. I'll get you a route, he said. You can have your own route selling supplies to farmers in the country. You'll make a bundle or you can get a job in Norfolk. You can move there. I said, no. You want to go to college? I'll send you to college in Norfolk or business school, whatever you want, but you have to stay. I can't do that. I'm telling you to stay, he said. Hear me? I need you to run the store and your mother needs you. I began to yell at him and we argued. Here he was having divorced mama and he was using her against me. Then he said, I know you're going to marry a Charvis. You're making a mistake. That stopped me cold because I didn't know how he learned it. To this day, I don't know. He said, if you marry a black man, don't ever come home again. Don't come back. I'll always come to see Mama. Not if you marry a black man, you won't, he said. Don't come back. He got in his car and left. When the bus came, I got on in and cried a little and then fell asleep. When I woke later on, I opened the lunch bag Mama had packed for me, and inside, tucked between the niches and masa balls and chopped liver, was her Polish passport with her picture inside. It's the only picture I have of her. She's sitting down holding me and my brother, Sam, in her lap. 
A few weeks after I got back to New York and was living with Dennis in Harlem, Dennis overheard my Aunt Mary say that Tata had put a detective out to look for me. It just made me lay low in Harlem. I was never going back home. Instead, I got a job at a glass factory down in the Chelsea area of Manhattan. My job was to hold these glass tubes over fire and stretch them in test tubes. I would come home from work every night with big burns on my hands. Not long after, in early 42, Dennis came home from Aunt Mary's factory and told me he heard Aunt Mary say that my mother was sick and had been brought to a hospital in the Bronx. I right away went out and called Aunt Mary and asked if she knew where Mama was. She said, you're out of the family. Stay out. We sat shiver for you. You can't see her. Well, that just hurt me to the bone. That night I told Dennis, I've got to see her. He said, Ruth, your Aunt Mary made it clear that you're not welcome up there. That gave me pause. I didn't want to make Mama sicker. After all, I was out of the family. I worried sick about it, trying to think what to do, and I could not decide. A few days later, I was at work at the glass factory, and the foreman, a German man, came over to me and told me I had a phone call. It was Dennis. He was calling from Aunt Mary's factory. He told me Mama had just passed away. They had a locker room in the glass factory where we changed and put on our work aprons, and I hung up the phone and went in there and howled out my grief. The foreman and other workers came in there and tried to help me stand because I had fallen to the floor, but I couldn't get up. I tried to, but I couldn't. And one of the ladies was saying, oh, she don't have to act like that, hollering and carrying on. I was depressed for months. I lost weight and couldn't eat, was near suicide. I kept saying, why couldn't it have been me that died? I would go on long walks and would forget where I was. I'd be someplace and couldn't remember how I got there. Dennis was the only one who shook me out of it. He kept saying, you've got to forgive yourself, Ruth. God forgives you. He'll forgive the most dreaded sin and the most dreaded sin. But I couldn't listen, not for a long while. I couldn't listen. I was so, so sorry. Deep in my heart, I was sorry. But all your sorries are gone when the person dies. She was gone, gone. That's why you have to say all your sorries and I love you while a person is living. Because tomorrow isn't promised. Lord, I was burning with hurt. I hung on to Mama's passport and carried it everywhere. I didn't think she was dying when I left home, but she knew it. That's why she gave me that passport. I've always held on that to this day, that guilt that I left Mama. Because her life, all her life, I was the one who translated for her and helped her around. I was her eyes and ears in America. And when I left, well, Sam had gone, and Booba had died, and her husband treated her so bad and divorced her, and her reasons for living just slipped away. It was a bad time. It took a long time to get over it, but Dennis stuck it out with me. And after a while, I began to listen to what he said about God forgiving you. And I began to hold on to that, that God will forgive you, will forgive the most dreaded sin, because I felt Mama deserved better from me. And that's when I started to go in, going to Metropolitan Church in Harlem with Dennis to hear Reverend Brown preach. It helped me to hear the Christian way, because I needed help. I needed to let Mama go. And that's when I started to become a Christian, and the Jew in me began to die. The Jew in me was dying anyway, but it truly died when my mother died. I remember how she used to laugh when she waved chickens over our heads on Yom Kippur. I bet they don't even do that now. She'd wave a live chicken over our head and say to the children, You to death, me to life, while we'd scream and run away because my father would take the chicken from her and kill it as a blood sacrifice. I didn't like that. It seemed so old-fashioned and odd. I don't want to do that in America, I'd say. But she'd say, That chicken is just showing God we're thankful for living. It's just a chicken. It's not a bird who flies. A bird who flies is special. You would never trap a bird who flies. She used to sit in a little rocking chair in her room upstairs and watch the birds. She'd lay the crumbs on the ledge of the window and the birds would gather there and eat while she sang to them. But she'd always shoo them away, make them fly off so they'd be free again. She had a little Yiddish song 
she used to sing to them. Fagale, fagale, gala flick. Birdie, birdie, fly away. Chapter 22. A Jew Discovered. James's Perspective. It was afternoon, August 1992, and I was standing in front of the only synagogue in downtown Suffolk. A collection of old storefronts, dimly lit buildings, and old railroad tracks that tell of better, more populous times. It's a small, old, white building with four tall columns and a row of stairs leading to a tall doorway. This is the synagogue that young Rachel Shilsky walked into with her family and where Rabbi Shilsky led the congregation during the Jewish holidays, Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year, and Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement and Fasting. When I was a boy, Jewish holidays meant a day off from school for me, and that was it. I certainly had no idea they had anything to do with me. I felt like an oddball standing in front of the quiet, empty building and looked up and down the street every couple minutes, lest the cops come by and wonder why a black man was loitering in front of a white man's building in the middle of the day in Suffolk, Virginia. This is, after all, the 90s, and any black man who loiters in front of a building for a long time, looking it over, is bound to draw suspicion from cops and others who probably think he's looking for an open entrance so he can climb in and steal something. Black males are closely associated with crime in America, not with Jewish white mothers, and I could not imagine a police officer buying my story as I stood in front of the Jewish temple saying, oh yeah, my grandfather was the rabbi here, you know? The sun was baking the sidewalk, and it was so hot I sat down on the steps, placing my tape recorder and notebook next to me. My long search for the Shilsky family ended here. I had spent considerable time looking through school records, court records, and other documents with mixed results. My grandmother, Hudis, was buried far from here, in a long island graveyard among hundreds and hundreds of Jews, more than she ever had the pleasure of living around down here. The U.S. Army forked over the death record of Sergeant Sam Shilsky, who died in February 1944. The details of his service record were gone forever, lost in a fire of Army personal records. I felt like I was stalking ghosts. No sign of Rabbi Shilsky, whom I traced to a Brooklyn address in the 1960s, where he apparently landed after wandering through Norfolk, Virginia, Belleville, New Jersey, and Manhattan. Dee Dee vanished from Suffolk shortly before her mother died and never returned. She withdrew from Suffolk High on January 23, 1942, one semester short of graduation. Her mother died five days later on January 28, 1942 in New York City. I can only imagine how painful that must have been, having to leave the only real home she had ever had at age 17. Her mother gone, her father with a Gentile woman, her brother in the war, her sister disappeared, being completely helpless as the pillars of her life fell away like toothpicks. Everything she had was gone. Whom did she live with? Maybe the father kept her. Who knows? I had a feeling she was still alive. She would have been about 67 then. I could have tracked her down. I was, after all, a reporter. But after a couple feeble attempts, I gave up. I didn't have the heart. I didn't want to introduce any more pain into her life. She'd seen enough. The closest I could come to her was to sit on the synagogue steps, baking in the August heat, and wonder. I wanted to see the inside of the synagogue. I wanted to see it, then later tell my black wife and my two children about it, because some of my blood runs through there, because my family has a history there, because there's a part of me in there, whether I or those that run the synagogue like it or not. In truth, I had never been inside an actual synagogue before. The closest being the time I was working as a reporter and did a story about a Jewish school in Queens that had a synagogue attached to it. In the course of interviewing the headmaster, a woman, I mentioned that my mother was Jewish and she exclaimed, Well, according to Jewish law, that means you're Jewish too. We have a black Jew who works in our school. She hit the intercom button on her phone and said, Sam, can you come up here a minute? 
Minutes later, the black janitor walked in holding the mop, smiling. I'd pay good money for a picture of my face at that moment. Old Sam smiled and said hello, and I gurgled out a polite response, though I wanted to choke myself for opening my big mouth. When I called the rabbi of my mother's old synagogue, he spoke to me with neither nostalgia nor surprise, only grudging recognition. He had heard I was in town from other Jews whom I had met. He knew I was black, and he knew who my mother was. I remember your mother, he said. I explained to him that I was writing a book about my family and asked if I might see some synagogue records. There's nothing in them that would help you, he said curtly. I asked if I could see the inside of the synagogue itself. He said, I'll have to check with some of the other board members to see who would have time to open it up to let you see it, and hung up. I knew the deal. Given the photo of the board members on the synagogue's anniversary pamphlet I'd obtained, I doubted if half the old geezers on the board were still drawing air. I hung up, muttering to myself, I didn't want to see your silly old synagogue anyway. By then I had seen enough anyway. The smell of azaleas and the creeping loneliness that climbed over me as I poked around Suffolk had begun to suffocate me. The isolation my family had felt, the heartbreak they had suffered, seemed to ooze out of the trees, curling through the stately old brick buildings and rising like steam off the Civil War statue that seemed to point its cannon directly at me as I wandered through the town graveyard. I wanted to leave right at that moment, but instead sat at the synagogue steps as if glued, as if my mind reeled back to a previous trip in 1982 when fate and luck led me deep into the bowels of a state office building where Aubrey Rubenstein was working for the highway department right out of office. Rubenstein was in his 60s then, a heavy-set man with dark hair, a deep southern accent, and a very clear and concise manner. His father had taken over my grandfather's store around 1942 after the old man left town. When I walked into his office and explained who I was, he looked at me a long, long time. He didn't smile. He didn't frown. Finally, he spoke. What a surprise, he said softly. He offered me a seat and a cup of coffee. I accepted. Don't move from there, he said. He got on the phone. Jaff, he said, I have incredible news. Fischl Shilsky's grandson is here, sitting in my office. No kidding. Uh-huh. And you won't believe it. He's black. No, I'm not lying. He's a reporter, writing a book about his family. Yep. When he hung up the phone, he said, when we're done, go around to the slaughterhouse on Main and see Jerry Jaff and his family. They'd like to see you in person. I knew the name Jaff. Mommy had spoken of them several times. The Jaffs had a slaughterhouse down the road. Tata would take us there to slaughter the cows in kosher faith. I made it a point to go see them. Like most of the Jews in Suffolk, they treated me very kindly, truly warm and welcoming, as if I were one of them, which in an odd way, I suppose I was. I found it odd and amazing when white people treated me that way, as if there were no barriers between us. It said a lot about this religion, Judaism, that some of its followers, old Southern crackers who talked with Southern twangs and wore straw hats, seemed to believe that its covenants went beyond the color of one's skin. The Sheffers, Helen Wintraub, the Jaffs, they talked to me in person and by the letter in a manner and tone that in essence said, don't forget us, we have survived here. Your mother was part of this. Sitting in his office, Aubrey Rubenstein talked easily as a black colleague sat nearby eavesdropping with awe at the macabre conversation, macabre conversation that unfolded between this elderly white man and myself. There are not that many of us left, Aubrey said. We had maybe 25 or 30 Jewish families here at one time, back when your grandfather was around. The older ones died, the younger ones left. Some went to California, some to Virginia Beach, or just moved. The only ones who stayed had business with their fathers that dropped down to them. Why did they all leave, I asked. Why stay, he said. It was not that easy of a place for a Jew to live. It was a tiny population of Jews. Most were merchants of one type or another. I suppose some found it easier to make a living elsewhere. Wandering Jews, I thought. 
We spoke easily for quite a while. It's an interesting thing that you've come down to check on your granddaddy, he said. It's quite a story, I must say. I asked him about my family. Well, it was kind of a tragedy, really. Shulsky wasn't the man he could have been. He was a good rabbi. By that I mean he knew what he was teaching. In fact, he taught me a little as a boy. But he went into business full-time, which didn't please a lot of Jews here. And he was seeing another woman for years. I'm not sure whether he was divorced when he left here or not. But I ran into him in New York after the war, maybe 46. Me and another fellow went to see him about buying a piece of property next door to his store. He was up in Brooklyn. What was he doing there? I don't know. But I believe Mrs. Shilsky had died by then. The whole thing was very tragic. Seeing the expression on my face, he added, Your grandmother was a fine lady. I still remember her coming to temple, lighting the candles and standing up to say prayers. I remember her clearly. She was crippled in a leg. She was a very fine lady. I asked him if anyone knew how Rabbi Shilsky treated his family, and Rubenstein shrugged. There are things that you hear, but no one asked. He was tight with his money, and they could have been doing better than they looked. The Shilskys kept to themselves. Your Uncle Sam, he joined the Air Force and got killed in a plane crash in Alaska. They didn't find his body or that of the other pilot for a long time, if they ever did find them. I heard this and don't know it to be true or not. Your Aunt Gladys, you don't know her, do you? She was a very bright girl. Your mother, well, she was a fine girl. Of course we had heard rumors, and I'm being frank that she ran off and married a black man, but I never knew it to be true or not. My daddy at one time said it, but my parents never gave it any further comment. My father and mother were like liberals in their days. I never heard them knock anybody for being white or black or green or Christian or Jew or Catholic. I said nothing, listening in silence. I imagined that the news of mommy's marriage crashed through the Jewish community like an earthquake. How is your mother? He asked. Fine. You know, he said, fingering the papers on his desk. You look a little bit like your mother. The smile. Do you attend temple? Being part Jewish? No, she didn't raise us Jewish. Well, maybe that's for the best, he said. I was surprised by his candidness and said so. We talked for a while longer before I rose to go. Next time you come back down, I'll see if I can dig up a picture of that old store, he said. Make sure to tell your mother Aubrey Rubinson said hello. I pointed to my tape player on my desk. The tape is running, I said. You can say it yourself. He leaned over to the tape and spoke softly into it. When he was done, he leaned back in his chair and looked at the ceiling thoughtfully. She picked that life for herself and she lived it. That's all. What her reasons for it were, I don't know. But she did a good job. She raised 12 children. She led a good life. I told him I'd be back in a few months. I'll have a picture of that store for you, he promised. But I waited 10 years to come back. When I called on him again, he had died. I kept the tape with his greeting to mommy on it for years. And while I never played it for her, thinking it might be too emotional for her to hear it, I played it for myself many times, thinking, wishing, hoping that the world would be this open-minded, knowing that God is. Ruth, this is Aubrey Rubenstein. I don't know if you remember me or not, but if you do, I'm glad to meet your son, and I see you've accomplished a great deal in your life. If you're ever down this way, stop on by and say hello to us. We all remember you. We wish you the best. As I sat on the steps of the synagogue in the hot August sun, his words sliced through my memory like raindrops. I watched as two little black girls strode by, waved, and walked on. One was eating a bag of potato chips. I said to myself, whatever I'm looking for, I've found it. I got in my car and drove back to the McDonald's where the store had been. I walked around the grounds once again, as if the earth would speak to me, but it did not. It was just a cement parking lot. They ought to take the whole kit and caboodle of these cement parking lots and heave them into the sea, I thought. The Shilskys were gone, long gone. That night, I slept in a motel just down the road from the McDonald's. And at about four in the morning, I sat straight up. Something just drew me awake. I tossed and turned for an hour, then got dressed and went inside, walking down the road toward the nearby wharf. As I walked along the wharf and looked over the Nesamond River, 
which was colored an odd purple by the light of the moon, I said to myself, what am I doing here? This place is so lonely, I gotta get out of here. It suddenly occurred to me that my grandmother had walked around here and gazed at this water many times, and the loneliness and agony that Huda Shilsky felt as a Jew in this lonely southern town, far from her mother and sisters in New York, unable to speak English, a disabled Polish immigrant whose husband had no love for her, and whose dreams of seeing her children grow up in America vanished as her life drained out of her at the age of 46, suddenly rose up in my blood and washed over me in waves. A penetrating loneliness covered me, lay on me so heavily, as I sit down and cover my face. I had no tears to shed. They were done long ago, but a new pain and a new awareness were born inside me. The uncertainty that lived inside me began to dissipate. The ache that the little boy who stared in the mirror felt was gone. My own humanity was awakened, rising up to greet me with a handshake as I watched the first glimmers of sunlight peek over the horizon. There's such a big difference between being dead and alive, I told myself. And the greatest gift that anyone can give anyone else is life. And the greatest sin a person can do to another is take away that life. Next to that, all the rules and religions in the world are secondary. Mere words and beliefs that people choose to believe and kill and hate by. My life won't be lived that way, and neither, I hope, will my children's. I left for New York happy in the knowledge that my grandmother had not suffered and died for nothing.